Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jason. Um, I, <laughs> um, I'm one of the somebodies at the church. Normally they introduce, I'm one of the leaders, I'm one of the somebodies. Um, last week we finished our teaching series on the Ten Commandments, uh, which was titled Ten Rules for Life. And um, Polly served us so well by uh, giving us the last installment in the series. And today, as I said, we're beginning a new series, um, which we've titled The Cruciform Life. Um, which really means the cross-shaped life. And uh, we're going to be considering what it means to live a life uh, in the example of the Lord Jesus um, with him as, as our lead. So um, I'm, normally, I'm a web developer by trade. I don't normally um, you know, find myself in front of uh, meetings that are very short and very small in my uh, arena. So I think it'd be good if we start by praying and just asking God to be with us. And um, yeah. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word, God, that is alive and living and active. Thank you, God, that you teach us through your word and you uh, encourage us. Thank you for the worship time this morning where we've been reminded of those truths. I pray, God, that you would bless this time, bless the listeners, bless me, God. Help us to deliver your word and to engage with it in a way that is um, life-changing and affirming. I ask you, God, to be with us in Jesus' name and for his glory alone. Amen. 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 Right, so as I said, I'm a web developer by trade. I'm officially a geek, I guess, or a nerd. I don't know which, which term you prefer. But um, I haven't always been a computer uh, guy. Uh, there was, as you can hear from my accent, I grew up in South Africa. There was a time when I was um, a farm worker or a farmer, uh, a, a nobody. And uh, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, um, or nowhere you'd really want to know about. And um, I was finished school at about the age of 15. And I, uh, my folks couldn't afford to send us to school anymore. And so I began uh, working full time and got a job as a game ranger on the farm. And uh, we had many responsibilities on the farm, um, one of which was um, firefighting. Uh, firefighting was a very real uh, risk on the farm. We lived on the high felt in South Africa where uh, the winters are very dry, the autumn gets uh, the grass sort of turns to tinder. And uh, I remember we, um, we had a very bad season in 1998. Uh, the grass was really dry, the trees got really dry, sort of mixed savanna and bushveld. Uh, and 98 we had really early uh, rains and we had really late rains. And so you had this period at the end of the summer, uh, going into the autumn, where the grass just got really dry. And uh, we had many fires that year. And I remember particularly one night we woke up and uh, the cry of fire and we all rushed and got dressed, ran out to the tractor and got going. And um, I was the driver, so I had to be there first. So we hauled off and got to where the fire was. And the first thing you do when you come outside is you look at the sky and try and determine where it is, how big it is, uh, kind of get a, an idea of what you're dealing with. And um, as I came out, I remember looking over to the western side of the sky, and the whole western sky was like this orange glow. And uh, when you see that, you know you're dealing with an absolute monster. You know, normally it's like a little band, and this, tonight it's like this, you know. So we got on the track, and we went down there. And uh, the homestead was on a hill, and all around was valleys on, on all sides. The farm wasn't particularly huge. It was about 1,200 hectares. But... Um, as we came over the ridge to, the, to base one where we were going to set up and, and, and sort of form a first defense, um, 
you kind of come over the hill and you see the valley laid out before you. And, I mean, it's miles wide. It's about 12 miles wide, about five miles long. And the whole valley was burning. It was like, if you look to the, that side and you look to that side, everything in between was just on fire. It was climbing out the other side of the valley, which never happened. So it was, it was like a monster. And as we stand in there, we start to get ready. We unpack. This thing starts to come over the ridge, you know, like in front of us. And it was just absolutely massive. It was about 70 feet high, eating about 10 feet a second. It was just a monster. And you're standing there with a broomstick. Effectively, it's like a broomstick with a piece of rubber on the end. That's what you've got to make your defense. So, you know, we, we unpacked and we got there. And it's good to get there late because it kind of... You don't have time to think. You just get going. And getting there early is also good because you can prep, but you also, you know, you stand there and you just get more afraid and more afraid and more afraid. And by the end of it, you're kind of terrified and this thing just comes on you. And um, I remember standing there. You're only left with two choices. You're either going to face it down or you die. Because at that point, it's too late to run. The tractor doesn't go fast enough. So you're either going to face it or you die. That's a simple choice. So we live very much in a world on fire nowadays. Our world is burning. Everywhere we look, there are wars and rumors of wars. Um, there's political unrest. It's certainly happening at home right now. Um, there's diseases and famines. And the Lord warned us about that. The Lord said that's what the world will be like. Um, the world will be uh, ravaged by these things. And it was no different really in Jesus' day. There wasn't the technology that we have today to sort of exercise power over one another or seek our own pleasure. But the heart was the same. The motivation behind men seeking their own pleasure was exactly the same. It was the same in Moses' day. It was the same in Noah's day. The world is really no different. The world has always been burning. And uh, the in inhumanity of man towards man seems to be at an all-time high. And today, as Jess said, we're only a week away from Easter in a society that largely disregards Easter. Uh, it's like a, a fun celebration to give each other chocolates and celebrate a rebirth. I was asking my kids when they were in school a couple of years ago, what's Easter about? And they said, it's about rebirth, Daddy. And I said, well, what is rebirth? And they were like, no, it's, it's like life. We celebrate life. And I had to sit them down and say, no, there's a man whose rebirth we're celebrating, the man Jesus. Easter's largely disregarded in our society. But um, for a world on fire, it was at the first Easter that God stepped in and provided a rescue for a world that is rushing into hell. You see, Jesus had a chance to step in and stand between this burning world and an eternity without God, or he could step aside and just let it happen. So today we're going to be considering uh, the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think the reading will come up in a second. But, um, you know, what we see in, in the life and the example of Jesus is a life of dependence upon God. The Lord was always depending upon God, drawing strength from God. That relationship was essentially the core of what Jesus was about. So let's read. I'm reading from the ESV. I don't know if this is the NIV. It, it may be slightly different. And of course, my Bible's still in my pocket. It is the ESV. It says it's on it. On it like a car bonnet, as we say. In the vernacular. <laughs> right, then reading from verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that is James and John, 
he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came to them and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So let me give you a brief background of where we are in the gospel narrative. For those of you who aren't familiar, Jesus and his disciples have come to the city of Jerusalem, and um, the Lord is just a week before this, has come into Jerusalem as a king. He received a king's welcome. Jerry read the verse uh, last week for us, what we call Palm Sunday. The Lord is welcomed in as a prophet and people are throwing their cloaks on the floor and it's just this amazing, this amazing image of, a, of the coming king into Jerusalem. And the Lord went into Jerusalem, he went into the temple and uh, he began to drive out those who were changing and uh, trading in the temple. And uh, for the week leading up to uh, this night, the Lord has been uh, basically setting up a pattern. He taught in the day in the temple and by night he would retreat to the Mount of Olives. Uh, to, to lodge there. And so that was the pattern for the week. And then we come to Friday when the Lord is in Jerusalem again and he's having the last uh, supper with his disciples uh, and the room prepared for them. The Lord retreats to the, the upper room with his disciples to share uh, the last supper. And the last supper, this is an amazing time that happens there. Jesus with his disciples. Um, the Lord uh, encourages them. Yeah, he prays for them. He prays for us, all those who would come to believe um, on, on account of his word, all those who would come to believe in Jesus. He prays for us. And uh, the Lord's focus essentially is outward. He's thinking about everybody else um, up until that point. And he, he's, if you read John 14 to 16, just absolutely amazing what goes on in the upper room. You wouldn't think that Jesus is hours away from you know, being, being betrayed and crucified. And so they finish their meal. Judas Iscariot goes out to betray Jesus to the Jewish authorities. And Jesus takes his disciples and he retreats to the garden, which was near the Mount of Olives again. And at last, it's in the garden that Jesus really takes some time for himself. And the weight of what he's facing kind of hits him at once when he comes to the garden. And um, the Lord really takes the time there to prepare his heart and to face the anguish and the turmoil that's going on in his heart. Um, and essentially, he, he readies himself to do battle in prayer to face what is coming on the, at the cross. This week, I got a WhatsApp message from a friend of mine, and a very good friend of mine, and he didn't say much. He just said to me, I'm going through a battle. Please pray for me. That's essentially what the message said. And I know him well enough to know that he was being serious, and so I, I did. I dropped everything, and I prayed right then and there, and... Um, I remembered him the next day and I, I prayed for him again and I heard from him and he was doing a lot better. But 
when Jesus comes to the garden, he, he leaves sort of the eight disciples outside the garden. And as he goes in, he takes the three closest disciples with him. The Lord had sort of this inner circle of, uh, of James and John and, P- and Peter, uh, which is, you know, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And they were with the Lord at crucial times throughout the Gospels. They were with Jesus when he raised uh, Jairus' uh, daughter from the dead. They were with the Lord when he was, uh, went up on the mountain and was transfigured before them. And they saw a glimpse of Jesus at his, in his glorified form. And then again here in the garden, the Lord takes his closest friends with him into the garden. And essentially says to them, come and watch with me. And he says, I, I, I need help. I need you guys to back me up. Pray with me. Come with me. So he takes his three closest friends into the garden. And as he goes into the garden, when he says to them, watch with me, what he's really saying is the Jewish term watch was, was one of like a military term. Um, there was the, the watch would stand on the city wall and would keep vigilant. They, would, they were the sentry essentially posted to the city wall. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, not casually just sit there and pray generally. He's saying, enter into this with me. Let's do this. Pray with me. Unfortunately, they fall asleep. But um, the Lord is asking for help. He's looking for backup. You know? And so he goes in and, and he, he takes three disciples uh, with him. And then going on a bit, we get the sense that the weight on Jesus just, it just hits him and it's almost too much. And the Lord collapses onto his knees and he begins praying, the Bible says, earnestly. Um, if anyone knew how to pray earnestly, I reckon it would have been Jesus. Um, prayer is one of those things that it seems to me you get better at the more you do it. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like conversation. Uh, you're kind of getting to know the other person, you know, you're talking to God, you're forming a relationship, and God knows us, that's the difference. It's not like a normal relationship where you, there's like equal back and forth. God already knows us, but we're getting to know God, and our hearts get into line with Him, and as we pray, we kind of, um, we come to know Him better. And Jesus prayed an awful lot. Um, his whole documented life, if you look through the Gospels and uh, sort of compare them, Jesus always or often, so often, would retreat to a quiet place by himself to pray. In fact, the verse often says in the Bible, um, and the Lord retreated by himself to a quiet place to pray. Time and time again, time and time again, the Lord retreats to find a quiet place, just to draw strength, to exercise his dependence upon the Father. That connection was absolutely vital. It was the core of Jesus' being, essentially. It was what drove him. And so the Lord goes away quietly to pray. In fact, when the disciples are caught on the, on the lake and the waves are whipping up the storm, it says Jesus came to them during the watch of the night. And he'd been away praying quietly for like six hours. And we pray for like 20 minutes, you know. And we think that's a lot. I mean, this prayer happens through the night and this 24-7 prayer. Man, that's such a good thing. We're getting in line with the heart of God and what God wants for us and for his church. So Jesus prayed an awful lot and he falls on his knees and begins to pray earnestly. And Luke's gospel tells us that his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. We read that in in Luke's gospel in chapter 22. And whether you interpret those verses as the Lord's actually sweating blood or that he's just sweating a lot, there's nothing really to drive that except fear itself. There's no physical exertion. There's no exercise taking place. God's literally sweating. Jesus is literally sweating because of the contemplation of what's about to happen. By the way, 
it is medically possible to sweat blood. I had to look this up. It, it, it's a recognized medical condition. And it's called hematohydrosis, if you wanted to know. And the body can actually sweat blood. The, 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 the skin cells rupture, and, and it could have been that the Lord was actually sweating blood. So, and it's brought on by you know, extreme stress. That's one of the triggers. But what the Bible is trying to communicate is Jesus was in absolute agony, anguish of soul. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I don't know if we have that verse. It says, for our sake, he, that is God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, that is Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So let me read it again without my injection there. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The unbelievable burden that Jesus is feeling in the garden is, is just that. He is contemplating becoming the embodiment of sin for us and for everyone who would come to believe. Jesus is going to take our filthy wrongdoing, our disgusting sin. And in my case, I mean, in a room like this, I feel like I can safely say, I feel like the chief among sinners. <laughs> I could say with Paul, I feel like the dirtiest person. That God rescued someone like me, it's just unbelievable. My eyes are probably puffy because I was crying as we were worshiping. It's just amazing that God would choose someone like me. It's so unbelievably sinful. So Jesus is contemplating that exchange that's going to happen. There's a physical element to it as well. Of course there is. God, Jesus was crucified. And as he faces the physical agony, that is a very real fear. It's, it's absolutely real. Um, the Roman crucifixion was no joke. You know, when the arms were outstretched, basically the body, the, the muscles exhaust. You can't exhale. And so it's a death by suffocation. You take a breath and you can't, you can't exhale. And that's why they broke the feet. You know, the prisoner would push himself up to get another breath and then lower himself again. And so when they wanted you to die, they broke your legs so that you couldn't, you know, it's horrific. Added to that, there's the, the flogging. They used a weapon called the cat of nine tails. And, uh, you know, it had nine strands. And in the end, the Roman soldiers would pick up whatever they could find, a rock or a piece of bone or a piece of copper and tie it to the end. And when they flogged the prisoner, those would catch in the flesh and rip the flesh away. You know, sometimes prisoners didn't even survive the flogging. The physical agony was very real. But the, the, the spiritual reality is much, much worse. Jesus is the only one who knows what it means to face a holy God. He said to his disciples, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that is as judge. Jesus is going to face God as judge for the sins that he's going to take on himself. No longer as father. Remember all the time that he's been praying, he's teaching his disciples the pattern. He says, my father in heaven, father, father. Every time he prays, that's how he prays. Daddy, Abba, that's the relationship he sets up. At the cross, it's going to be different. At the cross, Jesus will face God as judge for our sin. So that's kind of the weight that really hits him. Um, a friend shared this with me recently. I find this very helpful. I, I hope it's helpful. If you come to me after the service, and um, you may well do this, you come to me after the service and you say, Jace, I can't believe what you said in there. That was heresy. It was terrible. You should never do that again. And quite frankly, I hate you for mis misrepresenting the gospel. 
for misrepresenting Jesus, and then you storm out. I mean, that's really going to hurt. <laughs> it's going to hurt a lot more from some of you that I know better than others. Um, if you're a stranger, I'd be like, what does he know? <laughs> but if Jez said that to me, or Matt, or you know, anybody who really knows me, oh boy, it's really going to hurt. But I imagine I went home and told my wife the same thing. I said, uh, this is what happened, I preached, this is what I said. And she looks at me in disbelief and says, what? That's what you said? And she says, I hate you for misrepresenting the gospel. That's going to cut an awful lot deeper from my wife who knows me best. Now Jesus, as he's going to the cross, essentially God is going to put our sin on him and then look on that sin and say, I hate you on account of the sin. That's terrible. That's the God. That relationship has never been severed before. For eons back through time and before time was even time, God has eternally existed in those three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And at the cross for the first time, that's going to be interrupted for a time. And God will change the the, the relationship to be judge for our sin on Jesus. That's what he's contemplating in the garden. That's what the struggle is about. The flesh is weak and his body is like, God, if there's any other way that this can happen, let it be that way. Don't make me drink the cup of your judgment. Jesus talks about the cup. That's very important in the Bible. The cup often signified judgment. In the book of Revelation, it talks about the, the cup of the wine of the wrath of God in the presence of God. The, the angel takes and the nations have to drink it. It's the judgment of God. Jesus is talking about the cup passed from me. He's talking about the judgment for our sin. So that's the weight in the garden. That's really the suffering of the cross. And, you know, in Jesus' example, you see, you see that dependence upon God. He comes to that point where he's at the most crucial point in his time where he needs support. Excuse me. He needs basically strength. He needs to draw strength from the Lord, from God. And in our society, that kind of flips on its head. In our society, independence is celebrated. I said at the beginning, I started working full-time when I was 15. I tell other guys that, and they're really impressed. They're like, wow, 15. Look who's becoming a man, you know, 15 years old. That's great. It's good. It's good to be independent. Don't get me wrong. Guys, don't live with your mom until you're 30. It's not cool. You want to get a relationship and, you know, build a life. But independence is celebrated in that the self-made man is elevated, who needs to depend on someone else. That's not cool. That's like, that's like needy in our society. It's not cool. But Jesus is completely the opposite. He depends on God for everything. And when hardship comes and, and this, he faces this, the first thing he does is on his knees in prayer. Jesus is always on his knees, on his knees, dependent upon God for everything. Um, I don't know if you know the Dutch author Corrie ten Boom. As the South Africans would say... Corrie ten Boom. Uh, she was a Dutch writer and Christian speaker. She actually died in 1983, but her family rescued hundreds, maybe more, thousands maybe Jews from the, the, the Nazi Holocaust during World War II. They would hide them in their home from the Nazi authorities. And she was eventually arrested and sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. Just an amazing woman, survived that 
came out of the war and just went on to become a speaker and an author. And I had a book of quotes of hers. She had like a knack for delivering these cutting, short, sharp quotes that were so penetrating. And one of my favorites of hers, she said this, a man is powerful on his knees. I love that. It flies in the face of, of what we think. A man is powerful when he's headstrong, when he's Thor, right? <laughs> we love Thor. He can, he can lift the hammer. Right? But Jesus flips it on its head and says, a man is powerful down there. And when we're worshipping, I hope you don't mind me saying this, Martin was on his knees. That's beautiful. That's, like, that's God, like dependence. God, I'm worshipping you. I need you. I recognize you. You are everything to me. That's the kind of flip that we make in society. And in all of history, Jesus is the one person who least needs to behave that way. Least needs to. He's without sin. He's never done anything wrong. Remember, Jesus was the sinless Son of God. We've just finished a series on the Ten Commandments. Jesus fulfilled the Ten Commandments in his life. We can't. None of us can. But he did. He's the one least deserving of getting on his knees and saying, God, I need you. He's kind of arrived. He's fulfilled the He's fulfilled the Ten Commandments, but he does. Jesus demonstrates he's our example, always dependent, always needing that relationship with God. So as we look at the series and we're considering what does it look like to live the Christian life, that's what it looks like. On your knees before God. I want to say one more thing and then we'll, um, we'll pray. But uh, I think we should be reminded that in the garden, Jesus had a choice. You know, we sometimes think, or we sometimes dismissively talk about the cross, and we say, of course, of course the Lord had to do that. That's why he came. That was his mission, right? He came to die for sinners. But Jesus said, you know, right after he's arrested, we didn't read it, it's immediately after what we read. Peter, trying to help, they, this rabble comes with pitches, essentially pitchforks and torches, to arrest Jesus, and Peter pulls out a sword, and he starts swinging and he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus heals his ear and then says to Peter, what are you doing? Don't you realize this has to take place this way? And he says to him, don't you realize I could immediately appeal to my father and he would at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's a lot. <laughs> a legion in the Roman army was at least 6,000 people or men. Jesus is saying, I could have 72,000 angels here now. No one takes me against my will. I submit myself to this. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So we must never think Jesus didn't have a choice, that, that we rob the Lord of glory when we say, eh, had to do it, that was his mission. No. Jesus did that for us. That's exactly what we were singing this morning. We were worshiping. I was reminded of that so strongly. He chose to die for me. That's what makes it so amazing. Knowing me best, knowing everything that I've done wrong, he still went and did that. So Jesus said in John 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So again, Easter is just a week away and Christians have every reason to celebrate. Every reason. The good news, as we know, Jesus won the battle in Gethsemane. He triumphed over his flesh, his spirit, over the flesh. He prayed, he drew strength, and he won. And he emerged victorious. 
And as the Lord comes out of the garden, there's this resolution that settles on him. He's, he's so calm and determined to go through this. Even facing what he's facing, the battle's been won already there. And to the point where Pilate, the governor, who would have seen a lot of prisoners condemned, looks at Jesus, and all these guys are accusing him of, he said this, and he did this, and they bring the false witnesses against the Lord. And he, Jesus gave no answer. Didn't try to defend himself. Nothing was quiet. As a lamb before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It says that about Jesus in Isaiah. He submitted himself to what was happening because the battle had already been won. You know, I've been, um, I've been invited to or asked to do some furniture out here in the, in the entryway for the church. And what I always do is I start by doing a 3D model because, you know, wood costs money and I don't want to make 15 cuts. I'd like to make five cuts. So I model it out in 3D and I check the angles and everything like that. And you can click on the mouse in the middle of the screen and kind of rotate around the model and get a different perspective and look all around. With that click, wherever you click is the center point. If we think of the cross as the center point in history, which it is, the cross is the central point in history. All of history kind of pivots around the cross. If you don't believe me, it's, it's 2019. That's 2019 years after Jesus was born. So history pivots around Jesus' life and death. And if, if, if that's, that's the pivot point, the battle for the pivot point is in the garden. That's where Jesus won the victory. In, in his heart. And then he went on to work it out in his actions. So I'll leave you with this final verse. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Someone prayed that this morning. God, you are exalted at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Jesus has done it. It's finished. It was one time for you, for me, for everybody. I said earlier, Easter is good news for Christians. It's good news if you're not a Christian because you can enter in. Whosoever wills, let him come and drink freely of the waters of life. So we're going to have communion time now. We're going to break bread. On the same night that Jesus was arrested, he said, do this to remember me. Um, we have bread at the front and I think there's a table at the back as we do this let, let us do it with joy remembering that the Lord has done everything that was necessary and required he did it once never has to happen again and it is finished also I would say this is for Christians if you're not a Christian yet please don't feel awkward no one's going to look at you funny um, you know just leave it out we'll, no one's going to judge you hmm Let's pray.